the book of Jude. And we'll be finishing off our series in Jude today. Just while you turn there, let me say two things. How crazy is it that this day last year, well tomorrow, the 29th, is one year since Mary and I first came to River of Life. (laughs) It's crazy, isn't it? (laughs) I was just looking on the bus there, and uh, I realized that it was at the end of May, and I looked at it, and right enough, I met many of you for the first time this time last year, and then our journey has just taken off, and God's brought us here, and we have been blessed by so many of you. So thank you for making um, it's such, a, it's such a, a smooth and peaceful transition to life here in Frankfurt. We are turning into our series in Jude. At the beginning of our short series, um, by the last month, this time last month, I mentioned how the letter of Jude is known as the most neglected book in the New Testament. Do you remember that quote? The most neglected book in the New Testament. And yet, from the conversations that I've had and the conversations that I've heard, This series, in the book of Jude, appears to have been a very eye-opening series for many people. Because, as I said right at the beginning on our first day in this series, Jude is in fact a relevant and a reassuring read. And I trust that we have all been able to see that. And I trust that this will encourage us to go back to Jude and encourage us not to just not just to put it aside now that the sermon series is done, but to go back and read it time and time again and to dive deeper into the truth of God's word. And yet today we come to the one part of Jude that people do often know, the doxology, the magnificent doxology in verses 24 and 25. They are familiar to many of you, but let me read them again to us. Let's read together Jude verse 24. Jude closes with these words, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling... And to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. What a closing, hey? What a great closing. And right at the end, we're, we're brought right to the start of the letter. And we have to retrace well, what, what's been said so far. Well, in this letter, Jude has called his readers, and by extension, the universal church, to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Verse 3. Why? Why does he charge us to do this? Well, because false teachers are now among us. Certain people have crept in among Jude's readers and certain false teachers are among us today in our world. Teachers who reject authority, teachers who follow their own sinful desires and teachers who lead others astray. Wolves in sheep's clothing. And I'm sure as Jude's readers uh, read this letter, fears started to arise within their heart. And I'm sure you also as I too, as we have heard this teaching about false teaching, perhaps even for the first time, that we begin to become a little bit unsettled, a little bit fearful, scared of what happens if they're in my church. What happens if I'm under their influence? We may fear that our faith will fail because of the trials we face 
in life. We may fear that we won't make it until the end. Some of us may even fear that although we know God's word, we're scared that in the end, God will just reject us and sweep us away with the ungodly. We may even fear that the false teachers themselves can lead us astray from the truth. Fear is a common response to the fire of false teaching that surrounds us. And that's why Jude finishes with this magnificent doxology, with this final call, a, finer, a, a final exhortation which focuses on God's power to keep, to preserve, to guard his people. Jude's final exhortation takes the form of a doxology. This time last year I preached on a doxology from Romans 11. If you're there, maybe you remember the word doxology comes from two Greek words, one for glory and one for word. A doxology then is a word of glory, or we could say it's a hymn of praise. We know this is a doxology because of the opening words, now to him who is able, in verse 24. They've been used elsewhere in the New Testament to introduce other hymns of praise. For example, in Romans chapter 16, verse 25, the Apostle Paul writes, Now to him who is able to strengthen you. Or again in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20, the Apostle writes, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than we can ever ask or think. And in the same way, Jude draws his letter to a close with the expression, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. And in this doxology, Jude praises God because of a certain truth about God. Notice that, Jude praises God because of a certain truth about God. And I want us to spend most of our time, if not all of our time together this morning, considering the truth proclaimed about God. So as we progress through the sermon, don't worry as you look at the clock, it's most of our time today is going to consider the truth about God. And then towards the end, we're going to close by shortly and quickly looking at the praise offered to God. Because in this doxology, in this hymn of praise, there is so much communicated about our great God. So let's begin. Notice firstly, the truth proclaimed about God. This is the why of Jude's doxology, the cause for his hymn of praise, the reason why he pens it in verses 24 and 25. Jude praises God because God saves his people and because God preserves his people. Jude praises God because God saves us as his people and God preserves us as his people. Notice how God alone saves us. God the Father is the subject of Jude's hymn of praise. He is described in verse 25 by Jude as our saviour. God our saviour. Now this may make you scratch your head a little because we often say that Jesus is our saviour, don't we? Ask the children, if we change the word redeemer to saviour, who is our saviour? What would the answer be? Jesus is our saviour. And yet we don't need to scratch our head because the Bible proclaims that all three persons of the Godhead save his people. As Bible-believing Christians, we believe in one God who exists in three persons. Therefore, all three persons of the Godhead are united in the salvation of his people. 
So yes, it's true, 100% true, that God the Son, Jesus Christ, accomplished our salvation on the cross. But it is also true that God the Father arranged our salvation before the foundation of the world. It was his purpose, it was his plan. And it's also true that God the Spirit today uh, applies the saving work of Jesus to his people. I believe we need to think more often in Trinitarian terms because that's what the Bible does. The Father uh, arranged our salvation, the Son accomplished our salvation, and the Spirit applies our salvation. Take another example in the Old Testament, the event of the Exodus, where uh, God redeemed, bought back his people from slavery in Egypt. Who will ask, who redeemed the, the Israelites? And we will say, Yahweh. God Almighty, God the Father, to use the language of the New Testament. And yet, back in verse 5 of Jude, Jude tells us, let me just read it, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, is that right? Well, yes. Why is it right? Because all three persons were operating towards the salvation of his people. And here in this doxology, Jude focuses particularly on the saving work of God the Father. When you hear that word saved, or someone says, I'm saved, what, what image comes to your mind? What, what scene or, or picture or even episode on TV comes to mind? Well, I think maybe of a woman in the ocean saved by the Coast Guard. Maybe it's a child in a burning building saved by the fire brigade. Maybe it's even an elderly man on the internet saved from scammers by his children. You see, whatever the situation we think about, the word saved always includes danger. It always includes danger. We are saved from harm. We are saved from damage. We are saved from danger. So we have to ask, what then does God save his people from? Well, God saves his sinful people from his just judgment. God saves his sinful people from his just judgment. Let's take a moment just to break that sentence down. First, who is God? Well, God is the universe's creator and sustainer. He is a holy God. That word holy means that God is morally pure and that God is totally set apart from sin. Question number two, what is sin? Well, sin is the breaking of God's law. Sin is anything we do or anything that we feel to do that breaks God's commandments and displeases him. Not only is every human born a sinner, we're under God's condemnation because we, we, we were born into sin. But throughout our lives, we continue to sin. We are sinners through and through. And since God is a holy and a righteous God, he can't just sweep sin under the carpet. Therefore, the Bible tells us that, that God will punish sinners because of their sin. In fact, the Bible goes even further and it says that by nature we are already under God's condemnation and one day we will face God's just judgment. We can't escape it no matter how hard we try. We can't run from God because God's eyes are in every place. 
We can't impress God with our credentials like we would impress an employer today because they are meaningless before Almighty God. We can't even please God with our, with our good works and our good living because they are just filthy before him. And yet, in the midst of this darkness and amidst this devastating news, the Bible brings good news. The Bible proclaims that God is the saviour who saves his people from his just judgment. He saves them from his own wrath. And God does so by dealing with the heart of the problem, the problem of sin. You see, many of us try to deal with our sin by, by covering up. If I don't get drunk, if I don't uh, have sex outside of marriage, if I don't steal from people, then surely I'm a good person. Martin Luther used to talk about a man shaving his beard. It's a bit like sin, isn't it? We shave it one day completely off and we're completely clean. Everyone says, oh, what a, what a smooth baby face that guy has. Two days later, for some of us quicker, stubble starts to arrive and the beard starts to form and it comes back. Why? Because the root wasn't dealt with. And God deals with sin by, by, by dealing with the heart of the problem, the problem of sin itself. The Bible tells us that out of love, God the Father sent his one and only son into this world to live a perfect life and to die a sacrificial death in the place of his people. And on the cross, Jesus demonstrated his great love for his people by suffering, willingly suffering, and enduring the wrath of God for their sins. The punishment that we deserve because of our sin, he took, he endured for all who would trust in him. And three days later, well, God raised his son. He raised Jesus from the dead as a sign that his work on the cross was acceptable and as proof that those who trust in Jesus will be declared righteous in God's sight. That's why the Apostle Paul says that he was delivered up for our trespasses and he was raised for our justification, our declaration of, 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 of being righteous before God. Notice in that quick gospel summary that God has done it all. The only thing we bring to the gospel is the sin that we need saved from. God has done everything. And you ask me then today, what must I do to be saved? Life's biggest question. Jailer once said it in Acts chapter 16, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And Paul replied, Simply believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Don't want to embarrass him, but we've heard about Gary today again. And Gary's stories, all of our stories as Christians, at one point in our life, we believed in Jesus as our Savior and Lord. We, 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 we confessed our sins to God and trusted in Jesus' finished work on the cross in our place. And if you're not a Christian today, this is how you become, quote unquote, saved by confessing your sins to God and by trusting in Jesus' finished work on the cross in your place. Then, and only then, will you be saved. Because John 3.16 says, Whoever believes in Jesus shall not perish, but have everlasting life. So if you're not a Christian today, 
If you're not saved, repent from your sins. Turn from your sins and trust in Jesus. Accept God as your saviour because God is the saviour. The Apostle Paul put it like this in Titus 3, 4 to 5. Just a, just a verse to say that it's not just Jude who says that God is the Savior. Paul writes, Titus 3, verse 4, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Why? Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Friends, this is the central truth of Christianity. God saves his people only through faith in his son, Jesus. And if we're a Christian today, if you're a Christian today, may we never, may we never get tired of hearing the gospel as Christians. The old hymn said, didn't it? Tell me the old, old story. Tell me the gospel every day. We are saved because God saved us. Christian, you're loved Because God loved you. We are free as Christians because God has freed us. We are forgiven because God forgives us. We are righteous because God has made us righteous. We are justified because God has justified us. We are being sanctified because God has sanctified. And we will be glorified because God himself will glorify us. It is all because of God, our Savior. And that's the first truth that Jude proclaims in this doxology, the foundational truth of Christianity. God alone saves us. Amen? Remember, just on a side note, I remember in Bible college, my first year, we were talking about the gospel and a Christian, a a brother in Christ, a a genuine believer, said that, yeah, we, we need more than the gospel. We need more than the gospel. But we don't need more than the gospel because this is the foundation and this is the central of Christianity. We need to preach the gospel to ourselves every single day. And the gospel is this. God saves his people through his son, Jesus. But then Jude goes on and Jude gives us a second truth. He says in verse 24 that God alone preserves us. God alone preserves us. Look at what Jude says at the beginning of verse 24. He writes, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. The word for keep is is used elsewhere to describe a soldier guarding a prisoner and to describe the shepherds in Luke 2 who were keeping watch over their sheep. Both, both the soldier and the shepherd, well, well they kept watch to ensure that, that, that nothing could harm the prisoner and nothing could harm the sheep. And in the same way, God guards his people. He keeps watch over us. Why? To keep us from stumbling. What does Jude mean by the word stumble? Well, let's read on for a minute in verse 24 to find out. Jude says, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Jude looks to the final day when God will bring his people into his presence forever. 
Like the spotless sacrifice presented to God in the Old Testament, God's people will be, will be, will be presented to him without blemish, blameless, because they were dressed in the righteousness of Christ. That presentation will be full of great joy. Joy on our behalf as the saved, and joy on God's behalf as the saviour. Do you see the events that Judas is describing here in verse 24? After the and, that conjunction, after the and, Jude describes the final day when God's people are presented to him. So before the and, Jude must be describing the present time where God's people currently are. Do you see that? After the and, it's the presentation on the final day. And before the and, it's, it's this life, the, the pilgrimage of the Christian life, a life characterized by false teachers and by failures, a life characterized by sin and by slip-ups, a life characterized by trials and by tribulations. And in the midst of all these dangers, Jude proclaims that God is able to keep to guard, to protect his people from stumbling. Stumbling can't mean to sin. Because as Christians, we continue to sin every single day. First John 1 uh, says that whoever says he does not sin is lying. Stumbling can't mean sin because, because as Christians, we continue to sin. So it must mean falling. Falling from what? Falling totally from grace from God's saving grace, from the faith that we have professed. No matter what comes our way, if we are true, genuine believers, we will not totally abandon the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Why? Is it because I'm so good? No. It's because God himself guards us. This means that if we are truly saved, if we have trusted Christ as our Lord and Savior and continue to love him and trust in his finished work on the cross for us, we are eternally secure. The basis for our, for our preservation, for our protection, is that God has first genuinely saved us. And immediately our minds begin to think, don't they? Of those people who who profess faith in Christ and are not with him today. Those who have denied him over many years. Think of my mom, 50 years old, made a profession, according to my grandparents, at 10 years old, and yet for my whole lifetime, has never been interested in Christ. Or we think of the recent trend of deconstructing one's faith. What's that even mean? Deconstructing one's faith. How do we explain this objection in our minds? Well, we need to turn to God's word, don't we? Because God's word is the source and the final authority in all matters of faith and practice. Do you remember Jesus' words back in Matthew chapter 7? How Jesus described that on the last day, people will come to, uh, to, will, will come to him and, and claim to know him and even say that they perform mighty works in his name. What does Jesus say to them? Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. 
for I never knew you. Or think of John in 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, how he describes how some people, uh, they, they, they departed the faith, they denied Christ, they left the flock. And John says clearly, 1 John 2, 19, it was so that it became plain to us that they weren't part of the faith in the first place. And ultimately, friends, God knows the hearts of those that we are thinking about. So, so we shouldn't judge them. But I believe that God's word teaches that those who are truly saved will persevere until the end. Why? Because God himself preserves them. Our perseverance in the faith is because God himself preserves us in the faith. I had several passages up, but I, I don't have enough time to say that. But here's two from John's gospel. Again, not, not from John, but from the words of Jesus. Jesus said, John chapter 10, beginning in verse 27, My sheep, those who are Christians, hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Charles Spurgeon, do you remember that great Baptist preacher we quoted a couple of times before? Well, Spurgeon comes to this passage and he says, not only are believers held in Jesus' hand, but we're held in God the Father's hand. So he says that we are held, the true believer is held by a double grip of omnipotence, of power. Two hands holding us, wrapped by the Holy Spirit, Trinitarian theology. God the Father holds us, God, 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 God the Son holds us, and God the Spirit holds us. I, I knew I was going to go off. I was sent to Mary last night. Do you remember that passage in Ephesians chapter 1, where, uh, where Paul says that the Holy Spirit is our guarantee, he is our inheritance? Well, that word was, 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 was used of a token given to someone that their inheritance is sure and steadfast. My question is this, if God has given us the gift on Pentecost Sunday, the gift of the Holy Spirit, and God's gifts are irrevocable, Romans chapter 11, how then can we, in a sense, lose our inheritance in the future? Jesus also says in in John 17, John 17, high priestly prayer, Jesus' prayer, verse 11, he begins, verses 11 and 12, and I am no longer in the world, but they, my disciples, are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Jesus then prays again in verse 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them, you preserve them, you guard them from the evil one. And we say, is that only for the 12? Well, yes, up to that point. But Jesus then says in verse 20 of John 17, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Universal application to all believers. Jesus prays that our faith may not fail. And if Jesus prays that our faith may not fail, our faith will not totally fall from grace. Genuine Christians may sin greatly. Just look at King David. 
Genuine Christians may also deny Christ for a period of time. Just look at the Apostle Peter. But I believe that genuine Christians will never fall totally from saving grace. You see, if we could lose our salvation, I would have lost it 20 years ago. Um, yeah, what's that? That's, that's young. What do you say? 10 years ago? If we could lose our salvation, we would. But we won't lose it. Why? Because God finishes what he starts. If he has begun a good work in you, a true work in you, he will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. The God who saves us also preserves us to present us blameless in his presence. And what an encouragement this truth would have been for Jude's original readers. And what an encouragement this truth is for us today in the 21st century. Our Savior is our preserver. Even if false teachers lead us astray, even if we, tra- if, if, if we truly belong to God, he will one day bring us back to the truth and guard us until the end. Does that mean, Alex, that that I can just sit back, do as we like, and then, hey-ho, off to heaven we go? No. The Bible says that we have an ongoing responsibility to confirm our calling and election. That was Jude's command last week, wasn't it? Jude verse 21, keep yourselves in the love of God. Because by doing so, we reveal that we were saved by God in the first place. If there is no fruit in your life, and if you tell me today, I'm relying on a profession from 30 years ago at a meeting, and you have no present love for Christ and desire to please him and honor him with your life, then you need to check if that profession was genuine in the first place. If there is no fruit, we need to question if there was root in the first place. An American preacher, uh, I think theologian, Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse, once said, we can believe in eternal security, but we must never believe in eternal presumption. We we can believe in eternal security, but we must never believe in eternal presumption. So yes, we keep ourselves in the love of God. And yes, God keeps us. God guards us. God preserves us. Brothers and sisters in Christ, if you have a present love for and trust in God as your Savior, then you are a true follower of Jesus. Therefore, therefore, you're eternally secure. To paraphrase uh, Paul's words in Romans 11, 8, sorry, I am certain that neither death nor life, nor things present nor things to come, nor the devil or his demons, nor false teachers, nor failures, nor sin, nor slip-ups, nor temptations, nor trials, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. The God who saved us is the God who will preserve us. Amen. You may have noticed that to describe both truths, I've used the word alone. God alone saves. God alone preserves. In other words, he needs no assistance. And I hope you would say to me, well, Alex, where is that in the text? 
gospel. It's at the beginning of verse 25. Jude writes to the only God, our Savior. God is the one and only Savior and protector of his people. You see, from the many Old Testament references in in this letter of Jude, Jude's readers uh, seem to be coming from a Jewish background. And the uniqueness of God was therefore familiar to them. For example, Deuteronomy 4, 39, Moses writes, Know therefore today and lay it to your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. There is no others. Jude's readers also lived in a diverse society, much like ours today. A society full of other gods and, 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 and full of other saviors. The Greek god Zeus was known as, as, as the great saviour. Augustus, the Roman emperor, was given the title the god and the saviour emperor. And against this background, Jude encouraged his readers that God is the one and only He is incomparable. He alone saves and he alone preserves. And what this means for us today then is that when we are afraid, as we thought about at the beginning, our first response should be to turn to God. Not to sinful escapes. Not even to good things like family and friends. Our first response should be to cast our cares upon him because he cares for us. So when we fear that our faith may fail, we're to think of how he alone saved us, so he alone will keep us. When we fear that false teachers will, will, will lead us astray or lead this church astray, we should turn to him and talk to him about it. Pray along with Jesus. Father, I pray that you will keep them in your truth, for your word is truth. When we fear that we won't make it to the end, we should read his word and fix our eyes on the one who saved us and the one who will preserve us. Because God alone is our savior and God alone is our preserver. Before we move on to consider the second point, the praise offered to God, please note again that this is a, this is a doxology. What's a doxology? A hymn of praise. It's a hymn of praise. And yet, it's theologically rich. Jude's doxology is not some random expression of praise. Rather, it's biblically informed. It proclaims meaty, weighty truth. And surely this ought to make us think through the songs that we sing as Christians and the songs that we sing as a local church. In the fourth century after Christ, there was a, there was a false teacher. He's known as the great heretic Arius. Maybe, maybe you've heard of him before. The great heretic Arius. He taught that Jesus was, 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 was the firstborn of all creation. And then he applied that and said that, well, Jesus was created by God and therefore Jesus is not fully God. And do you know how the teaching of Arius spread throughout Alexandria? Through music. And at the council, whenever they were uh, about to condemn him as a heretic, by God's grace, they did condemn him as a heretic. 
but yet the, the food almost swayed in his favor because everyone, Christian and non-Christian, across Alexandria knew Arius' hymns. And I think that's a little bit instructive. I don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that everyone out there who has, has, has catchy songs or heretics, no, 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 I'm not saying that. But the power of music is clear. While the songs we sing may be catchy and uplifting, do they proclaim biblical truth? Will a struggling, a scared brother or sister in Christ leave our service encouraged, not only by the preaching of God's word, but also by the songs that we sing? And not because of the beat, but because of the truth proclaimed. There are enough songs, both old and new, in the Christian catalogue that mean that we never have to sing questionable or fluffy lyrics. So may we as a church continually praise God with acceptable words. May we praise God our saviour and may we praise God our preserver. And this is the truth that Jude proclaims in his doxology. Secondly, and honestly, it's much quicker, don't be panicking, the praise offered to God. The praise offered to God. So we've already heard today the, 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 the subject of our praise is God the Father. What does that mean? Well, it means we don't bow down to statues. We don't worship the earth. We don't praise saints. As Bible-believing followers of Jesus Christ, we, 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 we praise our Savior and our Keeper. Jude then says in verse 25 that, that we do so through Jesus Christ our Lord. Because of Jesus' finished work on our behalf, we can, we can now praise God. Because of his, his, his ongoing work as our great high priest, now seated at the right hand of God, Jesus offers our praise as acceptable to God. He is, he is our worship leader, the one who sings God's praises in heaven. The author he, Hebrews said in Hebrews thirteen, fifteen, through Jesus then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge him. Our hymn of praise, our doxology, our songs, our worship are offered and presented to God through Jesus. What are the elements of our praise that is offered to God from Jude 24 and 25? Well, Jude tells us in verse 25. He says, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority. Now, when Jude says, to the only God, be majesty, he doesn't ask that God would become great. Rather, he's, he's making a statement of fact. Jude praises God by acknowledging four attributes that are already his. Glory, majesty, dominion, and authority. God's glory is a, is a, is a summary term for for all of God's attributes. And his majesty refers to God's great presence. By using them together, Jude declares that, that God takes the highest honor. In an honor and shame culture where Jude was, this, was, this was, was very significant because it means that God is the greatest. God's dominion, thirdly, 
refers to his sovereign rule and his authority refers to his right to rule. And again, by using them together, Jude once again, against the false teachers, acknowledges God's right and power to reign and direct his church as he seems fit. And Jude continues in verse 25 by, by, by praising God because these attributes are his before all time and now and forever. These unique attributes are God's from before creation, now in the present time, and for eternity. They are unchanging characteristics of God. And it is by affirming these four unchanging attributes that Jude offers the highest praise possible to our only God. Let me say that again. It is by affirming these four unchanging attributes that Jude offers the highest praise to our only God. As we draw it to a close, you may be asking, out of all of God's attributes, why these four? Simply because they are appropriate to the present situation. The praise offered to God matches and corresponds to the truth proclaimed about God. You see, Jude affirms at the end of his letter that God is greater than the false teachers among us. No matter their influence, no matter how many people follow them, no matter if they sit as shepherds at the love feast, God is greater than the false teachers among us. Jude affirms at the end of his letter that God's word can be trusted no matter what certain people say. If their dreams, verse 8, contradict God's word, who do we trust? Jude says, trust God. He has all authority. Jude affirms at the end of his letter that God is in control even when we may be surprised by the invasion of wolves in sheep's clothing. We are surprised, but God isn't. He is sovereign before all time, now in the present, and for eternity. And Jude affirms at the end of his letter that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Therefore, therefore, we can confidently contend for the faith, knowing that God who saved us It's the same God who will preserve us until the end. Brothers and sisters in Christ, the Lord is on our side. And if God is for us, who can be against us? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, I want to thank you for your word. Father, thank you after four weeks in Jude, a difficult letter the most neglected letter in the New Testament, we are out the other side rejoicing because you are our saviour and you are the one who will preserve us and present us to yourself in the end. Father, for my brothers and sisters here today, for all of us, Lord, may we know the truth of your word applied to our hearts by your spirit. Father, may in the times when we are far from you, May we return to you and do the things that we did at the first. May we trust that you are the God who looks after us. You are the God who guards us. You are the one who protects us. 
Father, for anyone in our midst who is outside of Christ, Father, the, the gospel has been proclaimed so, so clearly, I trust today. This text has allowed us to think more deeply than normal about the truths of the gospel. And I pray that they today, by your spirit, would be moved to respond and put their faith in you as their saviour and only God. And it's through Jesus we offer this praise and prayer. In his name we ask. Amen.